Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1105, with a release and air date of Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1105 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The FCC confirms that amateur radio service operator license examinations may be held remotely without further commission involvement or rulemaking. The FCC is scrutinizing four Chinese government-controlled entities providing telecommunication services in the United States. The FCC adopts a new seal in anticipation of relocating to new headquarters in the near future. A British Columbia radio amateur finds another zombie satellite. We will tell you all about it. An emergency ventilator designed and constructed by HAMS is on its way to the FDA for approval. Response to the IARU Region 2 online workshops is exceeding expectations. Garmin is seeking a ruling from the FCC to obtain certification for a device containing both Part 95 and Part 25 devices. And... A NASA drone set to be the first aircraft to fly on Mars now has a new name, thanks to a 17-year-old girl. We will introduce you to her in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, talks about Apple iOS vulnerability to remote zero-click, a zero-day hack that is crashing iOS devices. Australia's own Anno Benshoff, VK6FLAB, asks for permission to be curious. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill presents part one of The History of Amateur Radio Repeaters. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will tell us the correct way to mount your vertical antenna upside down on your tower. And this week, we will take a retrospective look back at CBS newsman and fellow radio amateur, Walter Cronkite, the late and then KB2GSD. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, this Week in Amateur Radio takes to the air right now. Reporting from our new, isolated, socially distanced, UV-lit headquarters here just outside Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our news bureau just outside Albany, New York, in the Geek Cave studios... I'm Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. And reporting from our disinfected, selected, injected, and resurrected bug-out command center in a strategic location in the Catskill Mountains, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where the weather is taking a nice spring-like turn, 
I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Our lead story this week. The Wireless Telecommunications Bureau confirmed this week that amateur radio service operator examinations may be held remotely. In a release this week, the Commission said that the amateur radio service provides opportunities for self-training, intercommunication, and technical investigations for qualified persons of any age who are interested in radio technique solely with a personal aim and without pecuniary interest. To operate an amateur radio service station, an operator must have an FCC license. The Commission issues three classes of operator licenses, each authorizing a different level of privilege. We note that three additional license classes have been grandfathered under Commission rules. The class for which each licensee is qualified is determined during an examination by the level of skill and knowledge in operating a station that the licensee demonstrates to volunteer examiners who conduct this testing on behalf of FCC Certified Volunteer Examiner Coordinators. Many potential amateur radio test takers and volunteer examiners have contacted the Chairman and the Wireless Telecommunications Bureau to request that the Commission allow remote testing in light of current public health guidelines regarding social distancing during the current virus pandemic. We make clear here that nothing in the FCC rules prohibits remote testing, and prior FCC approval is not required to conduct remote tests. Amendment of the Amateur Service Rules Governing Qualifying Examination Systems WT Docket Numbers 12-282-09-209, also Report and Order 29 FCC RCD 6311, 6318, Paragraph 21 from 2014. The Commission provides flexibility to volunteer examiners and coordinators who wish to develop remote testing methods or to increase remote testing programs already in place. We recognize that some volunteer examiner coordinators may not have the immediate capacity for widespread remote testing. We expect those volunteer examiner coordinators with limited remote testing capacity to work closely with those requesting such testing to prioritize any available remote testing slots. The Federal Communications Commission this week issued orders to show cause against four companies that are ultimately subject to the ownership and control of the Chinese government. China Telecom Americas, China Unicom Americas, Pacific Networks, and ComNet. The orders direct the companies to explain why the Commission should not start the process of revoking their domestic and international section authorizations enabling them to operate in the United States. Today's action builds on the FCC's 2019 rejection on national security and law enforcement grounds of China Mobile USA's application to provide international telecommunication services between the United States and foreign destinations. Foreign entities providing telecommunication services or seeking to provide services in the United States must not pose a risk to our national security, said Chairman Pai. The show cause orders reflects our deep concern, one shared by the U.S. Departments of Commerce, Defense, Homeland Security, Justice, and State, and the U.S. Trade Representative about these companies' vulnerabilities to the exploitation, influence, and control of the Chinese Communist Party, 
given that they are subsidiaries of Chinese state-owned entities. We simply cannot take a risk and hope for the best when it comes to the security of our networks. The orders to show cause give the companies the opportunity to demonstrate that they are not subject to the influence and control of the Chinese government, that they continue to be qualified to hold domestic and international Section 214 authorizations and international signaling point codes, and that public convenience and necessity is served by the retention of the authorizations and assignments. Moreover, the order to show cause for China Telecom Americas directs that company to provide a detailed response to allegations raised in the executive branch recommendation to revoke their international Section 214 authorization. The entities have 30 days to respond. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. In anticipation of its upcoming relocation, the FCC has adopted a new FCC official seal. The redesigned seal is the product of an agency-wide contest that solicited proposals from employees and contractors. The winning design submitted by Umasankar Arumugam was selected by a vote of the agency's employees and contractors. The revised design incorporates several elements communications technologies currently transforming our world, four stars on the outer seal border drawing from the legacy of the predecessor Federal Radio Commission seal, 18 stars on the shield recognizing the current number of bureaus and offices, and the eagle and shield identifying the FCC as a federal government agency. Over the next few months, the FCC will incorporate the new seal on official stationery, business cards, publications, and other materials, including on its website and throughout its new headquarters. Official use of the new seal will begin following completion of the agency's move from the portals to its new headquarters building. The date of the move is yet to be determined and has been delayed due to the virus pandemic. British Columbia radio amateur Scott Tilly, VE7TIL, has found another zombie satellite, as he calls them. For more details on this story, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from Newington. This time, he tracked and identified radio signals from the experimental UHF military communications satellite LES-5. Tilly says he found the satellite in what he called a geostationary graveyard orbit after noting a modulated carrier on 236.7487 MHz. LES-5 was built by MIT's Lincoln Laboratory and launched in 1967 as part of the military's Tactical Satellite Communication Program. It was supposed to shut down in 1972, but it continues to operate as long as its solar panels are facing the sun. After British Columbia went on lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Tilly found himself with a lot of free time for such searches. He located LES-5 on March 24th. 
Most zombie satellites are satellites that are no longer under human control or will have failed to some degree. Tilly told the National Public Radio earlier this month, it's not clear whether LES-5 is still capable of receiving commands. Tilly told NPR he was inspired by a ham in Cornwall who, in 2016, found an earlier satellite, LES-1, built by the same lab and launched in 1965. What intrigued Chile about LES-5 was that it might be the oldest functioning geostationary satellite in space. From his home in Roberts Creek, British Columbia, Tilly, an amateur astronomer, routinely scans the skies for radio signals from classified objects orbiting the Earth. Since he started, he's located dozens of secret or unlisted satellites. In 2018, while hunting for an undisclosed U.S. government spacecraft launched in a lost mishap, he spotted the signature image or imager, for magnetic pause to Aurora Global Exploration, a NASA spacecraft believed to have died in December of 2005. That discovery delighted space scientists. NASA and another ham in the U.K. confirmed his finding. Launched in 2000 on a mission to monitor space weather, image mapped plasma patterns around the Earth. Radio amateurs have succeeded in providing a complete working ventilator system to University of Florida researchers who are in the process of applying to the Food and Drug Administration for an emergency use authorization. For more details on this story, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from Newington. A successful submission would blaze the way for volunteers and manufacturers around the world to create a low-cost, highly functional intensive care unit or anesthesia care ventilators that offer many of the same features of modern ventilators, but at a fraction of the typical cost. Dr. Gordon Gibby, KX4Z, who is associated with the project, said efforts to further improve the device are ongoing. Gibby credited some of the primary volunteers, saying, quote, Bob Benedict, KD8CGH, has provided incredible volunteer testing now exceeding 1.6 million cycles on one crucial valve and 300,000 on another. Jack Purdom, W-A-T-E-E, is the main code cleaner for one of the multiple teams building software following the initial lead of Marcelo Varanda, V-A-3-M-V-V. Ashar Farhan, V-U-2-E-S-E, not only created the ventilator controller schematic, but the printed circuit board layout that will be part of an expected University of Florida submission, unquote. Other hams worked on mechanical designs for flow measurements and retooled potential manufacturing capabilities otherwise used to produce transceivers. In another example of ham ingenuity, Mark Weisenreid, WA9ZCO, modified a readily available lawn sprinkler to serve as a durable expiratory valve. This development enabled the ventilator to go to more than 1 million breaths before significant valve issues developed, and the part can be replaced for less than $15. Radio amateurs delivered the operational control system, basic manufacturing instructions, software, and software explanations to the University of Florida on April 24th. We made a stunning improvement in accuracy of the system and measuring volumes last night at about 1 a.m., he told ARRL. Accuracy of that particular alarm measurement went from about 300% down to about 10%. The FDA submission is being readied, but we keep making engineering improvements. 
The completed prototype in Florida was built using typical tools by a radio amateur and assembled boards provided by LifeMech, a manufacturer working with the project. Farhan crafted an extendable menu structure for the Arduino nano-based controller, and gas flow measurements are made every few milliseconds by an I2C-based differential pressure transducer that can measure down to tiny PSI fractions, allowing the design to accurately track patient-induced variations in the volume of delivered gases. Using Wenzenreed's expiratory valve, electronic on-off control at the rate of 30 Hz allows modulation of the valve to set the continuous airwave pressure used to keep the patient's lung alveoli open against virus-induced waterlogging of the connective tissue, Gibby explained. An improved software design allows faster monitoring that accurately measures patient breaths despite gas flow perturbations, with the only valve component showing where, after nearly a million cycles, is the nitrile diaphragm. Perhaps the most surprising development was the addition of the ability to sense patient effort to take a breath and immediately switch to assisting the patient with that breath, known as assist control ventilation, Gibby said. This is expected to allow far lighter sedation of patients, potentially even no sedation, and allows patients' crucial respiratory muscles to keep up their strength. He said the current design goes far beyond the FDA's guidance document for emergency ventilator development. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. International Amateur Radio Union Region 2 says the response to an announcement of online emergency communication workshops was far beyond their expectations. Some 230 individuals have registered so far, and registration remains open. Given the degree of interest, the IARU Region 2 Executive Committee has appointed Augusto Gabaldani, OA4DOH, as workshop coordinator to set up processes for initial group of workshop sessions and to develop and manage ongoing workshops for radio amateurs in IARU Region 2. Workshops will be available free of charge using the Zoom video conferencing platform. IARU Region 2 says most workshops are already at or near capacity, but additional workshops are in development along with the new online registration process. Here is the current schedule. Wednesday, May 6th at 2300 UTC MCOM, WinLink 101 in English, limited to amateurs from Caribbean Telecommunications Union countries and other Caribbean islands. Instructors are Mike Burton, N6KZB, and Jason Trembley, VE3JXT. Wednesday, May 13th at 2300 UTC, MCOM WinLink 101 in English, targeting U.S. and Canadian radio amateurs. Instructors are Mike Burton, N6KZB, and Jason Tremblay, VE3JXT. Wednesday, May 20th, 2300 UTC, Satellite Communications 101 in Spanish, aimed at radio amateurs in Latin America and the Caribbean. Your instructors are Matias Graino, LU9CBL, and Guglielmo Guerrera, XQ3SA. 
on Wednesday, May 27th, 2300 UTC, Satellite Communications 101 in English targeting radio amateurs in the U.S., Canada, and the Caribbean. Instructor will be announced. These already registered will receive a confirmation email with the link and password for the event. Participants will be assigned to a workshop in the appropriate language. Contact Augusto Gabaldoni, OA4DOH, with requests for future workshop topics, volunteer speakers, or other comments or suggestions. The Radio Society of Great Britain has launched a major campaign. Get on the air to care in association with the UK National Health Service to help promote health and well-being within the amateur radio community during the pandemic. Now more than ever, we need to optimize all modes of communication to help reduce loneliness and isolation within communities, said Paul Devlin of the NHS England Emergency Care Improvement Support Team. Amateur Radio provides a wonderful, unprecedented opportunity to help make this a reality. The RSGB is urging radio amateurs in the UK and around the globe to get on the air to chat and support each other across the airwaves. Radio amateurs can get on the air to care with a simple handheld transceiver. RSGB General Manager Steve Thomas, M1ACB, said, We want this campaign to inspire even more to get involved and also to use hashtag GOTA to see when they share photos, videos, and news of what they're doing on various social media. Devlin said that GB1NHS, the UK's National Health Service ham station, gives the NHS the ability to reach communities anywhere in the world, regardless of geographic location or connection to domestic power supplies and lines, cell phone or internet services. It will be on the air as part of this campaign, so listen out for it. The RSGB communications manager, Heather Parsons, said the campaign has attracted media coverage that included a spot on the BBC, plus a video of support from Spandau Ballet lead singer Tony Hadley. We're asking for photos and short video clips of support with the hashtag GoTag2C, Parsons added and we'll be using them in the RSGB Journal, Radcom, and for our weekly Photo Friday on social media. Amateur Radio on the International Space Station, or A-R-I-S-S, ARIS, is hoping to adopt a concept that's called multipoint telebridge contact via amateur radio that will allow stay-at-home students to take part in amateur radio contacts with members of the space station crew. ARIS has used telebridge stations in the past to enable contacts at times when ISS orbit does not pass overhead to permit a direct radio contact with the school. In the conventional ARIS telebridge contact, an amateur ground station in a favorable location for a pass on a scheduled day makes the contact and handles two-way audio between the station and the contact site. ARIS said its new multipoint telebridge approach will permit simultaneous reception by families, school faculty, and the public. During the last several weeks, efforts to contain the spread of the virus has resulted in massive school closures worldwide, Harris said this week in a news release. In addition, the stay-at-home policies invoked by authorities initially shut down opportunities for Harris school contacts for the near future. Harris tested multi-print telecommunication schemes during a test during a contact with a group of Northern Virginia students on April 30. 
For that event, an Aris Telebridge ground station will link up with an ISS crew member via radio, and homebound students and their teacher will be linked individually via the Telebridge station. Under the teacher's direction, each home student will have a turn to ask the astronaut one question on a prepared list. This approach is a huge pivot for Eris, but we feel it's a great strategic move, said Eris International Chair Frank Bauer, KA3HDO. In these times of isolation due to the virus, these Eris connections provide a fantastic psychological boost to students, families, educators, and the public. And they continue our long-standing efforts to inspire, engage, and educate students with STEM subjects and encourage them to pursue STEM careers. The FCC is seeking public comment on an April 24th request by Garmin International for a declaratory ruling or a rules waiver to obtain equipment certification for a handheld unit that combines a low-power, terrestrial Part 95 multi-use radio service transmitter and a Part 25 emergency satellite communication module in the same device. Section 95.2761, subpart C, precludes combining MERS transmitting capabilities in equipment that is also capable of transmitting in another service, with the exception of Part 15 unlicensed services. Garment's proposed product is a handheld unit that will include two transmitters, a low-power MERS transmitter for short-range terrestrial communication, and a previously certified Part 25 module that will allow emergency communication via the Iridium satellite system under a blanket license held by Iridium. End users would have to subscribe to the Iridium service. Garmin argues that the purpose of the original equipment authorization restriction was to prevent consumer confusion with other terrestrial services that either had different licensing regimes or were for different types of communications, and that it is inappropriate in this case. Garmin asserts that a waiver would serve the public interest because the certified Part 25 module in the MERS unit would allow emergency communications to the outside world at the push of a button. The FCC seeks comment on the waiver request. Comments are due by May 28th, with reply comments due by June 13th. Interested parties may file short comments via the FCC's Electronic Comment Filing Service. Visit the FCC's How to Comment on FCC Proceedings page for information on filing extended comments. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. I'm the tech guy. I'm in my lab coat with my Bunsen burners, my protective eyewear, my face mask. And here I am, sheltering in place in my lab, tech guy labs. We don't know why they're plural. Could be just tech guy lab. Why are there two of them? I don't know. Don't know. (laughs) But that's what it is. Maybe it's my doppelganger in the other lab. That's probably what it is. Uh, I, you know, 
on, uh, I think it was Thursday, watching a little TV as one does, nothing much to do late at night, except look at the moon or look at the screen glowing in your living room. So I was doing the latter. And then my phone went, <laughs> stopped working, rebooted. So the little white apple on the screen, I said, what the, what the heck? It was the second time that day it had happened. Now I know why. Now I know why, oh, some wag sent me a text message which crashed my phone. Yes, it's happening again. This is not the first time. Uh, it, it, it's the same software that's causing the problem. It's what we call a rendering engine. Boom, boom. It's the thing that draws the pictures and the text on the screen. And uh, it is what we call an interpreter. It gets information, interprets it, and puts it on the screen. The problem with interpreters is if you're not careful, they can be sent something that they go bonkers with. And uh, as every good hacker knows, yes, I know you know this because you're a good hacker. Every good hacker knows that if you can get a computer to go bonkers, <laughs> you're uh, one step closer to getting it to take over it. To getting in its guts and saying, I can do what I will with my, this little machine. Crashes are usually a prelude to a hack. As soon as they figure out how to crash it, they go, okay. Okay, we were able to jump to memory somewhere we shouldn't have. That's good, because that's what's happening. Now, if we could just put something evil at that spot. Now we're talking. So if you, uh, you won't see it because it'll crash. This is the really sad thing is it'll crash it without you even opening the messages program or looking at it. It also works in other uh, messengers like Telegram, Facebook Messenger, and it works on the iPhone, the iPad, the Macintosh, and the Apple Watch. It's everywhere. Uh, it's, a, it's a string of characters, Cindy characters, and the Italian flag emoji. The Cindy language. You don't have to understand the Cindy language to be able to use it. You just need to paste it in. It's being spread around. Cindy is a, one of the many languages in uh, in India. And um, the issue is apparently fixed in the next version of iOS 13.4.5, which is in testing right now, not available to others. So expect maybe even today, and it would be worth it if you... And it's just a little information. You know, my wife said, oh, you should take it in. I, I said, oh, I guess there's something wrong with my phone. But then I found out, no, it's something not wrong with my phone. It's doing what it's supposed to do. This is one of a number of bugs. All of a sudden, what they call zero-day flaws, because they're already in the wild before anybody even knew about them. It's, uh, as Vice says, the rarest fish in the cybersecurity ocean. Which is really stretching a, a metaphor a little, a little too, too far, I think. <laughs> it takes advantage of vulnerabilities, yes, of course, in Apple's normally secure operating system. It's covered by a company in San Francisco called ZecOps. They all have funny names. It was announced on Wednesday that one of its that a few of its customers were targeted with two different zero-day exploits for iOS last year. Apple will also patch these. We presume zero days are bad because it means there's no fix and it's already being used typically they're discovered and used by nation states spy organizations <clears throat> and they're usually targeted against diplomats spies political figures that kind of thing 
VIPs. Sometimes it's an industrial espionage. They, they target executives of big companies. In fact, that's what ZECOPS does. Is they secure executives. Get it? ZECOPS. They secure executives from big companies. And uh, I guess two of their uh, two of their guys got hacked. It's a remote zero click. If you really want to get specific, that means you don't have to do anything. It can. They could just just like this. I bet it's related to this uh, message hack. Where somebody, you don't even have to open messages. Your phone will just crash if somebody sends you the text. I bet you really, I bet they're related. So, uh, as always, uh, look for patches. You know, there's vulnerabilities in all operating systems, some more than others. Apple makes a lot of money because people like me say it's safer. It's more secure. And it's true, there are fewer of these. But it's probably important to understand nothing is perfect. And anything that is attacked with sufficient resources and vigor, the kinds of resources and vigor that a nation state might have, you know, the CIA or the NSA or the Saudis or the Israelis or, well, there are many, many nation states that are have their own hackers and then they pay lots of money, millions of dollars sometimes for these little zero days. And then they keep them. You know, what is what is normally done by the security community is what we call responsible disclosure. Security guy finds a flaw and goes, ooh, yikes, and then contacts the company and says, you got 90 days to fix this. The clock is ticking. 90 days is the typical amount, three months. Usually considered enough for a company to figure out what the problem is and, and send out a patch. The reason they don't just say, hey, fix it and, and walk away is because if they found it, somebody else could find it. And you don't want companies to take too long to fix flaws like this. You want them to get right on it. So you give them a deadline because, you know, we're human. We work better with a deadline. So the the clock is ticking for a zero day because there's it's revealed. It's too late. It's out there. <clears throat> you don't have 90 days. You got no time at all. And Apple's pretty good about this. And I imagine there's some number of engineers working as fast as they can to figure out what it is and how they can fix it. And there's a good reason to because the bad guys are out in force right now. They are loving this quarantine thing. Ransomware attacks, in fact, now are bigger than credit card theft. One in five malware or hacking incidents, according to research by a cybersecurity company Trustwave, one in five involves a ransomware attack. And that was in 2019. I think it's on the upswing. That's a 400% increase over 2018. It means that ransomware attacks are more common than credit card and financial data breaches for the first time ever. But I guess that's not really a surprise to anybody, is it? Nope. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
Repeaters. It seems they are everywhere, and they are. Several thousand amateur repeaters operate on our bands from 29.5 megahertz all the way up through the microwave range. In fact, there are more amateur repeaters in the U.S. and Canada than there are AM broadcast stations. How and when did this evolve? Let's take a look at the development of repeaters in the amateur community. If you had a guess when the first repeater came on the air, what would you say? 1970? 1965? 1955? Try 1932. It was in the early 1930s that the first duplex phone relay stations, as they were then called, came into existence. W1AWW and W1HMO set up a manned relay station in a 90-foot wooden lookout tower near Springfield, Massachusetts. They used a super-regenerative receiver tuned to 60 megacycles, the top of the old 5-meter band, and a modulated oscillator transmitter on 56 megacycles, the bottom of the band. Stations in Connecticut, Massachusetts, or Rhode Island could transmit on 60 megacycles and have their signals manually rebroadcast on 56 megacycles. This relay station, of course, was in operation only when amateurs were on duty at the lookout tower. Fully automatic repeater operation was still over 30 years away. In the 1950s and early 1960s, there were a few AM repeaters on the air in California. But, for the most part, VHF operations in the 1940s through the late 1960s were on AM phone in the simplex mode with a handful of sideband stations thrown in. Using crystal-controlled transmitters with about 10 watts and single-conversion superhets, the typical VHF operator had a range of 10 to 15 miles, not counting any band openings. There were a handful of FM stations, of course, but the development of FM as a mainstream amateur mode of communication had been pushed aside by sideband. As early as 1940, QSD had construction projects for a complete 112 megacycle FM station, but then FM took a back seat in 1947 when sideband appeared. Now, however, thanks to an FCC edict, it was about to make a comeback. In 1960, the FCC issued new requirements for the users of VHF commercial frequencies. Over the period from 1960 to 1970, commercial users gradually phased in narrowband 5 kHz deviation equipment to replace the wideband 15 kHz transceivers that they had been using. Rather than revamp the older equipment to meet the new standards, they simply purchased new radios. The old radios made their way to the surplus market where they were quickly snapped up by amateurs. Converting this equipment to ham frequencies was relatively easy and soon hundreds of stations were operating on 52.525 megacycles and 146.94. Why those frequencies? Well, 52525 was the lowest 6 meter frequency on which wideband FM was allowed and 14694 was chosen to accommodate technicians who weren't allowed above 147 megacycles. Thus, these became the first calling channels. It wasn't long before some surplus commercial equipment was revamped into repeaters. Unlike the 1932 setup, these were fully automatic devices with no need for a control operator to be present. This, however, presented problems. 
Part 97 at that time contained no provision for repeater operation, and it was unclear as to whether it was legal to operate a repeater without a control operator present. Many proposals were presented to the FCC to clarify the rules in regards to repeaters. FM and repeaters received considerable publicity in 1969 when Hurricane Camille caused widespread destruction in the Gulf Coast in Virginia. This was the first time mobile rigs, FM, and repeaters were used extensively in an emergency. FM activity increased in late 1969 and early 1970 with the ARRL's announcement that it no longer considered technicians to be just experimenters, but rather full-fledged communicators. Also adding to the popularity of FM was the introduction of the first commercial rigs for the amateur market, from manufacturers such as Galaxy, Clegg, and Drake. By 1970, it was clear that coordinated legal growth of FM and repeaters was necessary. In early 1970, the FCC proposed its first repeater rules. They were as follows. On 6 meters, repeater inputs would be from 52.5 to 52.7, with the outputs at 53.0 to 53.2 megahertz. For 2 meters, repeater inputs would be authorized from 146.3 to 146.6, and the corresponding outputs would be from 146.9 to 147.2. On our 220 band, the input-output subbands were 223.1 to 223.3, with the outputs at 224.1 to 224.3, and on our 440 band, Repeaters would be authorized on 447.7 to 448.9 for inputs and 449.1 to 449.3 for outputs. By the way, it looks like the 1970 FCC proposal contained a typo in the 440 MHz band segments. Whistle on or other coded access would be required. Carrier activated repeaters would not be allowed. No crossband, linked, or chain repeaters or multiple outputs would be allowed. The maximum power permitted would be 600 watts input or about 400 watts output. And finally, the FCC declined to allow fully automatic repeater operation. The proposed rules required that the licensee of a repeater station to be in attendance at the transmitter or at an authorized fixed control point and to monitor all transmissions of the station. The proposed repeater rules appeared unduly restrictive to many hams. Except for two meters, each band only had a 200 kilohertz wide input-output window. On two meters, the input-output subbands were 300 kilohertz wide, but two-thirds of the repeater output subband was above 147 megahertz where technicians weren't allowed. The FCC had still not acted on the ARRL's 1969 proposal to open all VHF frequencies to technicians. When the FCC was questioned on the legality of a technician using a repeater whose input was within the 145 to 147 technician subband, but whose output was above 147, they said the technician operator could not use the repeater. The FCC went on to say, quote, the licensee of such a repeater should sit there with the latest call book showing license class and keep his finger on the no-no button, unquote. And yes, this is an actual quote. So much for liberal repeater rules. Despite the FCC's rather restricted proposed rules, 
Repeater operations flourished throughout 1970 and 1971. Over 200 repeaters were on the air by 1971, almost all of them in the 146 to 147 MHz range, so they could be used by technicians. But with the uncertain status of future FCC rules, the lack of national frequency standards, and the inability of technicians to operate the full 2-meter band, a dark cloud hung over the FM world. In our next installment, we will review the ARRL's national plan for 2-meter FM, as well as the revised FCC rules on repeater operation. I hope you will join me. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. The following is an amateur radio news line special report. I'm Bill Pasternak, WA6ITF. On Friday, July 17th, a legend in broadcast journalism and in ham radio passed from the scene. That person was the man who eventually became known as the most trusted person in America. Of course, we're talking about Walter Cronkite, KB2GSD. With a look at the man, his career, and his connection to amateur radio, here's Mark Abramovich, NT3V. Ham radio became a late-in-life hobby to KB2GSD, and he didn't get into it for the reasons that most of us did. In Walter Cronkite's case, he was in love with sailing and owned his own boat. It was suggested by some of his co-workers at CBS News, who were hams, that having an amateur radio station on board would be an additional measure of safety. One of those CBS hams was former ARRL director Steve Mendelson, W2ML, now with ABC. Well, in the first 20 years of my career in broadcasting, I was fortunate enough to be an engineer for the CBS radio network. In that capacity, many of the big names of 60 Minutes, our uh, CBS Evening News, and many of the names that became uh, household icons passed through the little control room that I operated in, one of which was Walter Cronkite. And Walter was always interested in ham radio, but said he could never pass the code test. And for years, Walter and I shared a love of the sea. I actually retired after 30 years in the Navy and Navy Reserve as a Navy senior chief. So Walter and I would spend 15 to 20 minutes each day just talking about ham radio, talking about the Navy and his sailing. Also working at CBS at the time as a news producer was current CQ editor Rich Moseson, W2VU. He was N2BFG back then and an associate producer of the award-winning children's series In the News. He, along with Mendelssohn, were the two volunteer examiners who administered Walter Cronkite's novice class Morse test. I remember my boss at the time, Joel Heller, WA2FFI, who was an executive producer at CBS News, calling me into his office one day, and Steve Mendelssohn and Walter Cronkite were sitting there. He said... Mr. Cronkite's decided to get his ham license and take his test, and Steve's going to do the written test this is for the novice. Would you be willing to give him the code test? Of course, I said yes. And what an exam it was. Back in those days, the novice came by mail and required only two higher-grade hams to administer the test. Mosesen and Steve Mendelssohn gave Walter his novice Morse test in a most unusual setting. Again, 
Steve Mendelson, W2ML. When the talent came in and sat down in front of the microphone, you always took your tone oscillator and set a proper level into the recording devices, in this case some very, very old tape recorders. And while I had the tone up, I looked at the producer, and the producer this particular day was Rich Moses and now W2VU. I started sending code just for fun. Walter sat behind the microphone, took his pencil out, and started copying. I did that for 10 minutes, picked up a copy of the New York Times, and just sent a sentence out of the Times. I think it was about actually three long sentences. Richard timed it, and when we were done, I said to Walter, how did you do? And he read them back perfectly. So Rich and I looked at each other and said, yep, okay, he just passed the code test. And I hit the intercom between the control room and the uh, recording booth, and I said, are you sure you couldn't pass a code test? And he said, no, I'd be too nervous. And I just smiled at Rich. Rich smiled at me. And I said, well, you just passed your code test. Now you better go study for the written. And that was it. The FCC assigned Walter Cronkite the call letters KB2GSD. That call and his novice license were the only ones he ever held. And while he was not on the air very much, Steve Mendelson remembers one very amusing 10-meter QSO that he and Cronkite were both part of. Walter had gotten on 10 meters without very much in the way of activity. It was a sunspot minimum that year. And so he called me on the phone and said, would you at least work me so I can say I've talked to somebody? Well, little did he know it was one of those crazy days when 10 meters was open to the Midwest, but he could barely hear me. So we're talking to each other, and suddenly a gentleman comes in from Kansas City and says that is the worst Walter Cronkite imitation I have ever heard. And I did the usual QRZ. He came back to me with his call sign, and he said, your friend does a lousy Cronkite imitation. So I turned it over to Walter, KB2GSD, this is WA2DHF. Could you do that imitation again? And he said, hi, my name is Walter, Whiskey America Lima Tango Echo Romeo, and I'm in New York City. And there's dead silence for a minute. The guy comes on and says, Okay, you have the same first name, but come on, Walter Cronkite on ham radio, never gonna happen. And I said to the gentleman, well, actually, that is Walter Cronkite. And he said, you know, you guys from New York, all you want to do is fool people or take us in the Midwest for fools. Well, we're not. And with that, he signed off. And Walter said, are they all like that? Walter Cronkite's ham radio legacy was assured in 2002 when he agreed to narrate the AWRL-sponsored video Amateur Radio Today. Dave Bell, W6AQ, was the executive producer of that project and tells us how Cronkite's involvement came about. Bill Pasternak and Alan Carl and I and, and Jim Haney, the president of the AWRL, we all wanted Walter Cronkite to narrate this film. We got Bill Baker, who was the head of public television in New York City, and happens to be W1BKR to ask Walter if he'd do it, and Walter said he would. Uh, I went to New York with my little digital video camera 
And when Walter saw me in his office, I got there before he did, with a little camera, he knew that he wasn't just going to narrate this film, that he was actually going to host it. So we chatted about how much more effective it would be if he were on camera, and he agreed with me. He narrated the thing perfectly. We did three or four sentences at a time, and then we would pause, and then he'd go right on. And my friend Alan wrote that script, and Walter only changed one word. And it's probably the ham radio film that I am the most proud of, and it really does cement Walter's connection to amateur radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Now, back to Mark Abramovich, NT3V, and more on the ham radio legacy of Walter Cronkite, KB2, GSD. Two years later, as broadband over powerline internet access threatened to wipe out much of the high-frequency ham radio spectrum, the ARRL again turned to Dave Bell for a video to help educate the ham radio public on this threat to its survival. The script by the late Alan Call, W6RCL, was written with Walter Cronkite in mind to narrate. The question was, would he? Once again, Dave Bell, W6AQ. The ARRL was having no luck at all with the FCC, and they wanted the members of Congress and all of the uh, FCC commissioners who were reasonable to understand the ARRL's position about broadband over power line, which basically just wiped out the high-frequency spectrum. For hams, any place that BPL was employed, once again... Getting Walter to host a film about BPL gave it weight that no other person in the entire country could give it. When a congressman or an executive in Washington of any kind gets a DVD and it says, narrated by Walter Cronkite, that means it's true. I don't think that film would have been nearly as effective with anybody else narrating it. Walter Leland Cronkite Jr. was born in St. Joseph, Missouri on November 4, 1916. Having developed an interest in the media, in 1935 he dropped out of college in his junior year after starting a series of newspaper reporting jobs covering news and sports. Cronkite's first broadcast job came the same year when he landed an announcer's job at WKY Radio in Oklahoma City. In 1936, he met his future wife, Betsy Maxwell, while working as the sports announcer for KCMO in Kansas City. In 1950, Walter Cronkite began his television career, working at Washington, D.C. station WTOB-TV after being recruited into CBS News by the great Edward R. Murrow. On July 7, 1952, the term anchor was coined to describe Cronkite's role at the first ever telecast of the Democratic and Republican National Conventions. In the 1950s, Walter Cronkite hosted the CBS programs You Are There and the 20th Century. Later, he also hosted a game show called It's News to Me, based on news events. 
On April 16, 1962, Cronkite succeeded Douglas Edwards as the anchor for the prestigious CBS Evening News. Under Cronkite's 19 years at its helm, the CBS Evening News acquired a reputation for accuracy and depth in its broadcast journalism, and Cronkite himself was given the title of the most trusted man in America. This because of his professionalism and kindly demeanor when reporting. By the time Walter Cronkite retired from the Evening News on March 6, 1981, he had become affectionately dubbed Uncle Walter by his millions of nightly viewers, the same people who had earlier named him the most trusted man in America. After turning the reins of the CBS Nightly News over to Dan Rather, he went on to another career as one of the world's greatest commentators, guest speakers, and documentarians. This included hosting the annual Vienna New Year's concert on PBS and the Kennedy Center Honors Performance from Washington. In addition to appearing in the two AWRL ham radio videos, most recently he teamed up with his son Chip, producing material that aired on the new retirement TV network. Across all of his years in broadcasting and broadcast journalism, Walter Cronkite won many literary awards. And on March 1st, 2006, KB2 GSD became the first non-astronaut to receive NASA's Ambassador of Exploration Award, this in recognition of his support and reporting on the United States space program. Now, Walter Cronkite, KB2 GSD, may no longer be among us, but the legacy he left behind will be a part of the world and the world of amateur radio forever. I'm Mark Abramovich, NT3V, reporting. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday, May 1st. We actually have a sunspot to report this week. The Cycle 25 spot has appeared in the sun's northern hemisphere and should be visible for several days. It'll be interesting to see how long it lasts and what effect it may have on the solar flux index, which is presently at about 69. There is also a coronal hole in the sun's atmosphere, so look for some increased geomagnetic activity over the next several days. On VHF and UHF, things are hot on 2 meters, and eastern Texas and southern Louisiana with some major band openings taking place. These are expected to continue well into next week. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. Friday, May 1st brings a significant change to AMSAT's member experience. The launch of our Wild Apricot-based member portal on this date retires the D-based database system launched in the early 1980s by then-President Dr. Tom Clark, K3IO, then W3IWI. You can visit the new member portal on Wild Apricot by going to AMSAT.org and clicking on the AMSAT and you logo. We have a new satellite. The radio equipment of RS-44 is fully operational and works well. The CW beacon is on 435.604 MHz and still only sends its ID, RS-44. You can use the inverting linear transponder now. The downlink is centered on 145.965 MHz LSB and the uplink is centered on 435 decimal 640 MHz USB with a 30 kHz bandwidth. Thanks to Nico PA0DLO and the AMSAT News Service for this story. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. Here's some quick news briefs for this week from the world of amateur radio. 
The 2020 Central States VHF Society Conference, set for July, has been put off until next year, July 30th and 31st, 2021. The conference hotel is not yet ready to accept 2021 reservations. Contest University, a staple of Dayton Hamvention Week, will take place online this year through the Zoom video platform, and all sessions will be free. Visit the Contest University website to register. Live Contest University sessions via Zoom will get underway on Thursday, May 14th at 1245 UTC and will be recorded and archived. The AWRL New England Division Convention, hosted by the Northeast Ham Exposition at its new location in Marlboro, Massachusetts, has been postponed until November 6th through the 8th due to the pandemic. The show had been scheduled for July. ICOM has announced that delivery of its new IC705HF430 MHz all-mode 10-watt transceiver, scheduled for release last month, has been pushed back to later this year because the virus pandemic has delayed the delivery of some components. The Vienna International Center in Austria has authorized the call sign for U2 Stay Home for use by the UN Amateur Radio Contest DX Club for U1A to promote amateur radio goodwill and over-the-air social networking. QSL cards go to UA3DX. Contacts with For You To Stay Home count for both CMA and SHA awards. In DX News, we have three stations that have announced that they'll be on the air during the coming week. These include 8Q7KB in the Maldives, GU75LIB from the island of Guernsey, celebrating the 75th anniversary of its liberation during World War II, and a possible opportunity to work SV2RSG-A for Mount Athos, primarily on 20-meter CW and SSB. The Vienna International Center in Austria has authorized the call sign 4U2STAYHOME for use by the UN Amateur Radio Contest DX Club 4U1A. United Nations Amateur Radio Club President James Sart, K2QI, approved the call sign to promote amateur radio goodwill and over the air social networking. QSL cards go to UA3DX. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Foundations of Amateur Radio The activities that our community places under the banner of Amateur Radio are many and varied. I've referred to this as a thousand hobbies in one. If you look at the surface, you'll find all manner of activities that readily attach to our hobby. Activations, for example, are invented at any opportunity. From parks to peaks, lighthouses, bridges, trains, boats, lakes, roads, locators and countries. We pursue contesting making contacts using different modes, different power levels. We pick the frequencies on which we operate. If you dig a little deeper, you might consider investigating propagation or antenna builds, electronics, physics and more. It occurs to me that there is an underlying activity, one that any amateur can participate in and most do at whatever level they choose. 
It's the act of being curious. You can choose to turn your radio on and be curious to what's going on around you on the bands, or you can be curious as to what the underlying principles are of the mode you're using to make a contact. You can be curious as to the electrical principles, and you can be curious as to the maths behind that. Superficially, you might think that being curious isn't really something that is remarkable. I'm here to disagree with that. If you drive a car, you can choose to be curious, but many just put fuel in the right hole and keep air in the tyres. Most will wash their car from time to time, some will dig into the innards of their car, but the vast majority, lacking even a superficial understanding, will have their car serviced by an expert. The same is true for computers. You might not wash your computer, but doing maintenance is often a case of waiting for it to die and calling your local IT expert. There is absolutely opportunity for curiosity in relation to cars and computers, and there are plenty of stories from those who follow that path. In our community, I think that this balance is completely different. In amateur radio, there are a few people who use their radio like the majority of the general public uses their car. But in the whole, I think that the bulk of radio amateurs travel down a rabbit hole on a regular basis, armed with multimeters, screwdrivers and soldering irons. I see their reports, I hear their questions, I read their emails and respond to their requests. You might say that I'm biased, since those are the amateurs I come across. But I think that's underselling quite how special this hobby of ours really is. I love that you can be curious about an antenna, and keep digging and become curious about the underlying laws, right down to the fundamental principles behind the phenomenon we experience as radio. I've said many times that getting your license is like receiving the keys to the hobby. You have the ability to open the door and come inside to see and explore for yourself. What have you been curious about lately, and what did you do about it? I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. I think I might even get this done right on one take. This is... Tower Climbing Safety by Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, episode number 16, Mounting Repeater Antennas Upside Down. When you're a repeater owner and you have the opportunity to move your system to a new tower, sometimes the mounting site you are offered is an upside-down mount. This means your antenna will be hanging upside down from the way it's designed. Water can become a real problem in this instance. From time to time, I've had to deal with these placements too. Over the years, I have talked to technical people at different antenna manufacturers and run into the same methods of modifying antennas for upside-down mounting. Generally, a fiberglass shroud-encased antenna needs to be modified with the addition of two small holes you drill yourself, a 1/8 inch hole near the top cap or in the side near the top end will drain any water in the main body of the antenna. Those antennas that have a separate mount which consists of an aluminum tube with two clamps and a set screw, then the coax is fed through the tube and attached directly to the bottom of the antenna. You will need to drill another hole near the level of the connector. This will allow water to drain from the mounting tube instead of entering into the antenna body by way of the coax connector. Now you've modified your antenna for upside down mounting. There's one more problem. You'll need to seal the top end of the mounting tube to keep rainwater from entering in the first place. Here, I use silicone caulk. 
Be careful not to get any on the coax connector hardware. Some silicone cure systems can attack copper. I build a seal around the tube and the coax and apply more to the coax to form a small mound above the bottom of the mounting tube. After the caulking cures, you can add another sealant like coax seal for added protection. Don't forget to secure the coax during the curing time so holes don't form in the silicone plug you've just made. I've known of people using flaps cut from truck tire inner tubes to cover the entrance of the coax into the mounting tube. This also keeps sunlight off the silicone and is known to be very long-lasting. The best philosophy is to use a few layers of protection, making sure each one is chemically different from the others. So if one fail, the others are different and more likely to survive. Here's a common repeater antenna failure I've seen. The common practice is to use a short jumper coax to go between the antenna and the upper end of the hard line. Be sure to secure as much of it to the antenna mount or sidearm. You want the jumper to move with the tower, antenna, and mounting hardware, but not flex, flex much on its own. One of the most common failures I have seen in repeater systems is improperly installed jumper cable. The most common failure was flexing caused by the wind breaking the outer conductor of the coax jumper. Perhaps you've encountered some others. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. The Amateur Radio Linear Transponder, Sideband and CW, on the new Russian DOS AAF-85, or RS-44 satellite, has been activated. Dmitry Pashkov, RU4AAB, explains that RS-85 is a small scientific satellite built by specialists at information satellite systems and students at the Siberian State Aerospace University. The satellite's name commemorates the 85th anniversary of the Voluntary Society for the Assistance to the Army, Aviation and Navy, the organization responsible for military training of Soviet youths. This is the third satellite created by the specialists of ISS Rechnikov, which is based in the Ubayanev platform, and features a hexagonal prism structure with a body-mounted solar cells. It was launched into orbit last December 26th from the Cosmodrome and is in an elliptical orbit with a perigee of 1,175 kilometers, an apogee of 1,511 kilometers, and an inclination of 82.5 degrees. Transmitter power is 5 watts, and the beacon is on 435.605 megahertz, identifying as RS-44. The transponder is inverting, with uplink centered at 145.965 MHz and downlink centered at 435.640 MHz. The Seven Call Amateur Radio Club, based in Tokyo, is celebrating its 30th anniversary with a special event station using the call sign 8J17CALL. This is a new call sign prefix. The event will continue until April 21st, 2021. The first seven call sign, 7K1AAA, was issued on April 23rd, 1990, and the last, 7N4XZZ, on June 20th, 2003. On Wednesday, the 29th of April, 2020, EI4GNB in Ireland managed to complete a digital FT8 contact with LY2YR on 40.220 MHz on the new 8-meter band. 
Not only was this an EI to LY first, but it was also the very first contact made between any two countries on the band. The distance was approximately 2,039 kilometers, and the mode of propagation was sporadic E. It should be noted that while Lithuania does not have an official allocation at 40 MHz, the licensing authorities in the country have kindly given LY2YR special permission to carry out experiments on the spot frequencies of 40.220 MHz and 40.680 MHz. This is a model that could perhaps be copied by other interested radio amateurs in other countries. It may be a lot easier to get special permission to use spot frequencies for a limited period of time rather than a general allocation. It is hoped that there will be activity from Slovenia very soon, and hopefully this will generate more interest in this fascinating 8-meter VHF band. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. This story from the Wireless Institute of Australia. On Friday, detectives in Australia were searching for an amateur radio operator that has gone missing in the Australian bush. Detectives in Victoria, Australia have been combing the remote region where an amateur radio operator with a serious medical condition disappeared during a recent camping trip. The missing person squad has been searching for Russell Hill, VK3VZP, and a family friend, Carol Clay, who have not been seen since the fire erupted at their campsite in the bush, authorities said. The fire destroyed a table, a tent, and some camp chairs, and left Russell's vehicle scorched. According to a report on ABC Net Australia, Russell was last heard on the air using his ICOM IC706 Mark IIG on the 20th of March on 3670 kHz. Authorities said he and four of his mates would check in with one another on the frequency every evening at 1800 hours. Detectives told ABC Net that they were trying to rule out foul play. According to Acting Inspector Dave Fife. Russell, who is 74, was a seasoned camper and a former logger who knew the area well. The pair's campsite was at Dry River Creek Track near the Wanangata campground. Other campers in the area discovered the remains of the campsite on the 21st of March. Detectives also are in search of a DJI brand Mavic drone that Russell had brought along on the trip. Meanwhile, an Australian amateur radio operator has taken the first license exam remotely, a testing process declared successful by the Australian Maritime College and the Wireless Institute of Australia. The candidate, a resident of Perth in VK6, passed the foundation examination, which was administered by Oscar Reyes, VK3TX, and Lee Moyle, VK3GK. The two were authorized to conduct the assessment on behalf of the AMC, and both are directors of the WIA. 
With in-person exam sessions on hold as a result of virus restrictions, the two volunteer examiners were pleased that things went smoothly on the 20th of April. Lee issued a statement afterwards saying, It is moments like these that make it all worth it. It is part of the personal reward for volunteering your time to help others achieve their goals. Speaking of goals, the new amateur who is not identified is reportedly studying to upgrade for his standard license. According to a report in the New Indian Express, amateur radio operators in Kerala have joined the fight against the pandemic. The newspaper said the district administration has enlisted radio amateurs to improve important communications between departments and offices. Over 20 hams organized into teams are involved. Radio Amateur Society of Anstapuri President Dr. Zakir Hussain, VU3OOH, said using ham radio during the time of crisis would help coordinate crucial communications. We have assigned our teams at the District Medical Office and Administrative Subdivision Offices, Hussein told the paper. We have a team at the District Administration, which is the center of all action. He said helplines are now in operation to receive many calls, including distress calls. If anyone is in need of emergency medical care, they can immediately inform their respective taluk office and the ambulance desk so that help reaches in time, he said. The Times of India reports that a radio amateur in West Bengal drove 98 kilometers to deliver medicine to an elderly resident of Rahara. We've been providing assistance to people ever since the lockdown was announced, said Raju Bizwaz, VE2JFA, the secretary of the West Bengal Radio Club. The Telegraph newspaper in India reported an anecdote regarding a homeless woman who showed up in Swajarj Ghosh, VU3URP, was distributing food for people on the streets. He contacted Bijwaz, who in turn got in touch with radio amateurs in the woman's hometown. They were able to contact her father, who'd been looking for her. The results of the spring 2020 ARRL frequency measuring test conducted on April 24th have been posted. Coming in at the top of the list for stations entering readings of both the 40-meter and 80-meter frequencies was Steve Sirwin, WA5FRF. His average error rate was 0.004902 parts per million. The top 10 looked like this, with average error rates in parts per million. Bill DeCarly, VE2IQ, has posted a ranked list of participants who submitted readings for both frequencies. Today's frequency measuring tests are conducted completely online with no manual log checking or intervention. Connie Marshall, K5CM, provides Bruce Horn, WA7BNM, with the precise actual frequencies participating individuals submit their measurements and machines handle the rest. 98 radio amateurs took part on the April frequency measuring test. The next frequency measuring test will take place in November. Taking part in the FMT does not require special laboratory equipment. Modern HF transceivers can measure frequency quite accurately, and SDR-based receivers and available software can enable precise frequency measurements. Today's FMT leaders are able to accurately measure beyond the number of decimal places that a typical transceiver will display, however. One station participating in the 2019 Spring FMT used an LCraft KX3 and Spectrum Lab audio software. Another employed his LCraft K3 transceiver and tuning forks to get within 1 hertz of the mark on both bands. Some information on how to measure the frequency of a carrier is available on Marshall's website, as well as in past articles in QST. Visit the FMT Nuts Discussion Group on groups.io. And finally this week, 
bound to make history as the first aircraft to attempt powered flight on another planet, NASA's new Mars helicopter now has a name that lives up to the daunting task, Ingenuity. And it's all thanks to 17-year-old Vanessa Rupani. Rupani, a high school junior from Northport, Alabama, earned the honor of naming the helicopter after she submitted her essay into NASA's Name the Rover contest. While NASA announced in March that its next rover would be named Perseverance based on 7th grader Alexander Mather's essay, the agency decided to also choose a name for the helicopter that will accompany the rover to Mars. Rupani's entry was among 28,000 essays submitted by K-12 students from every U.S. state and territory, according to NASA, which made the announcement Wednesday. The ingenuity and brilliance of people working hard to overcome the challenges of interplanetary travel are what allow us all to experience the wonders of space exploration, Rupani wrote in her essay, according to a news release by NASA. Ingenuity is what allows people to accomplish amazing things, and it allows us to expand our horizons to the edges of the universe, it said. Rupani has been interested in space science since she was a young child, according to her mother Nashween Rupani. On their way to school every day, she and her dad would pretend they were in a spaceship. They would imagine seeing planets, buildings, stars, traffic lights, etc., on their way and give them names, Nashween Rupani told NASA. To have her submission selected was more than exciting, the teenager said. I thought Ingenuity would be a good name for the helicopter because that is exactly what it took to design this machine, she told NASA. The helicopter is an incredible project, and I am thrilled to have a part in its journey. Ingenuity and Perseverance are scheduled to launch in July and land next February at Mars Jezreel Crater, the site of a lake that existed 3.5 billion years ago. While the rover collects samples of Mars, the helicopter will attempt to fly and, if successful, it will enable future Mars missions to add an aerial dimension to their explorations, according to NASA. Future aircrafts could help investigate targets that are difficult to reach by rover, such as cliffs, caves, and deep craters, and they could also carry science instruments. The launch of Perseverance and Ingenuity is part of the larger Artemis program, in which NASA intends to land the first woman and the next man on the moon in 2024, and eventually send astronauts to Mars. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like the W0GMM repeater on 147.285 MHz in Grove, Oklahoma, serving Northeast Oklahoma, Southwest Missouri, and Northwest Arkansas. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.